Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. All right, here's multiple choice question for you on this Monday. Do you want to buy a U.S. deepener, gold, U.S. equities, or a WeWork if you can get it pre-IPO? Luckily, <laughs> we're going to have a man who's going to answer that question. That's Hans Olsen, Chief Investment Officer of Fiduciary Trust with $78 billion in assets under management. So, cross asset, that was your multiple choice question. Which would you buy in ranking order? <laughs> WeWork, gold, well, or WeWork, WeWork pre-IPO, a steepener, gold, or U.S. equities? Uh, well, I'd have to do probably. Can I get to? Uh, he D? looks pained, by the yeah, way. Yeah, 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 none yeah of the above. Yeah, yeah no, oh wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, well that says a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> they have seventy-eight billion dollars of assets under management. He has to buy pretty much everything out there. Uh, so, so why? Like, it's my way of trying to see like where is their actual value right now. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to find a lot of value any place right now. I mean, perhaps the the areas that we find it mostly would be in places like um, uh, Europe, uh, even UK, which is really a non-consensus trade for sure. But in the U.S., um, you know, the earnings growth is there. The multiples are expanding. It's been pretty tough. We're overweight U.S. equities for sure. We've tried to rotate more into the low volatility types of names uh, as a way to. To, to do it responsibly. But but I have to say, Alex, the environment right now is is not great for people putting new money to work. We're speaking with Hans Olsen, Chief Investment Officer of Fiduciary Trust. Hans, just let's start maybe just with your economic outlook. I mean, yeah. the U.S. seems pretty solid, but we see some weird news. Alex and I were talking about earlier out of Germany earlier today. So how do you view the kind of the U.S. economy? Yeah, so the U.S. economy, if, we, if I were to color code the U.S. economy uh, with green being growth, yellow warning, you know, danger and red recession, I think we're probably going from green to light green at the moment. So whether it's the hard data, the soft data, we see uh, a, a collection of, of surveys that all point to continued growth in the U.S., slower than what it's been, but continuing to grow. Uh, is your call on, say, U.K. equities and European equities, is that based on a Brexit thing, or is that literally, is that a value trade? Well, I think in the in the uh, UK, both in the UK and Europe, I mean, you put the politics aside for a moment. If you look at things like uh, valuation and earnings growth, they're better. They're more compelling than they are here in the United States. They just happen to be wrapped in the difficult wrapper of the politics. You know, our core assumption is that perhaps Brexit won't be anywhere near as bad uh, as people think. Um, when you look at the statistics since the end of um, since the since the vote back in 2016. The one economy that has really defied expectations in the popular narrative has been the UK economy, both in terms of growth, inflation, and the like. And uh, I'm not so sure about what we couldn't see that continue to happen even post-Brexit. There'll so, be some hiccups, for right. sure, but uh, I'm not sure it will be as devastating as people are, are, are postulating. So as you think about your global portfolio, where are you kind of in the allocation, how much risk are you taking these days um, with the portfolio? Yeah, so that's a good question because it's really um, an exercise in nuance increasingly. Um, so when the U.S. equity market, as I said, we've, we've been rotating exposures and, and where we have added exposures been to more of the low volatility names, right? Trying to stay away from any value biases, but, but those companies with dividends uh, and uh, have less of an attachment to the overall market. So the beta is lower to that of the market. On the credit side, you know, we have for some time been shorter on duration. We're lengthening out the duration because I think there is a real possibility that in the next part of the cycle, 
amazingly enough, the U.S. will see uh, negative interest rates. And the other thing that we've been doing is we've been um, pivoting up into uh, higher qual quality credits to, in an attempt to get some sort of carry. Um, so it's kind of a belt and suspenders type of exercise. So what I would say to that is that you're not alone. And I, what I mean by that is that low volatility stocks have now inherently become more volatile because there's so much now money into it for the reasons that you said. You can make the same argument for going up the safety curve when it comes to investment grade. And uh, many argue that we're way overbought when it comes to the long end. So how do you deal with that? What do you say yeah, to that? Yeah, I think it, it, it all depends upon what your benchmark duration is, right? So we're, we're not going out 30 years or 20 years. We're really trying to stay right on the benchmark. And for us, that's probably going to be around four years, five years, um, whereas we were two to three years before. So we've, we've lengthened out. And you're right, there's a lot of money in movement. Money is, is trying to find a home, especially when we're back to the TINA principle, right, where there mm -hmm. is no alternative to equities. Um, so it's, it's not a perfect trade, but I think it's a, a trade, and, and certainly over the, the, uh, the agita that we've seen over the last week or so, those low vol names that uh, we've invested in have held up quite well, relatively, you know, they've, they've outperformed by about 300 basis points, which is not bad in an environment like that. So Hans, what do you what do you expect to hear out of Jackson Hole at the end of this week? Uh, a lot of market participants think it's a very, very important time for Chairman Powell to articulate kind of how he views the Fed over the next, uh, you know, several quarters. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the the tell is going to be actually what uh, there was a white paper that the IMF released and, and it reads something like a guide to uh, deeply negative interest rates to fight recession. It's, it's sort of it's 85 page white paper that is the that lays out the funda uh, the foundations and the fundamentals about how to position the concept of negative interest rates, I think, particularly in the United States, and you're already seeing some of the Fed governors talk about it, um, uh, that it's not so unusual and, and that zero bound is really just a number. I think we'll start to see more of that conversation tumble out of uh, 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 Jackson Hole, without a doubt, and we're sort of setting ourselves up for the next cycle for, I think, higher probability of neg negative interest rates, which when you think about- Negative interest rates in the U.S.? In the U.S., when you think about it, you know, the reserve the currency- it's never, never happened. happened. Exactly. But mm -hmm. but a reserve like currency, the the Swiss franc, may have negative interest rates. The entire German sovereign curve is below zero. Um, and, you know, we have, what, 16, 17 trillion dollars worth of negative yielding debt of both the sovereign and corporate variety in Europe. But does that bring up MMT? And I say that because I've been talking about this BlackRock paper all morning. I'm probably boring Paul at this point, which is basically they talked about just that helicopter money. You're going to have to have coordinated monetary and fiscal policy in order to get stuff done in the right. next recession. I mean, is that basically what you think we're headed for? Two salient observations there. Number one, I think we've come to the limits of uh, monetary policy. <clears throat> and that's why I think we're hearing about, uh, you know, the ideas of another tax cut being floated this morning. Uh, and the other thing is that, um, uh, you know, when you're running trillion dollar plus uh, deficits, which is what we're doing, especially at this point in the cycle, when we're talking about more tax cuts and we are talking about negative interest rates, even considering them, that is actually, you know, modern monetary theory, perhaps dressed up a little bit differently, but that's effectively it. So I, I think we're kind of there in many respects. And that's a really uncomfortable um, um, thought to ponder. Interesting. Hans Olsen, thank you so much for joining us. Hans is Chief uh, Investment Officer for Fiduciary Trust, joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio.
turn our attention now to gold. The commodity commodity is up about 25% year to date. So is that just a move by investors for a safe haven asset? Asset, or is there something else driving the commodity? To get those answers, uh, we welcome Joe Cavatoni, managing director of the World Gold Council U.S. Joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Joe, thanks so much for being here. Give us a sense of what is driving gold here so far in 2019. It's great to be here. What's driving gold in 2018 into 19 has been uh, pretty much risk and uncertainty, market risk and uncertainty. A client or an investor's inability to understand where really the direction of the markets is going to go. And hearing regular and ongoing updates of large systemic issues that give them caution and concern. If it is talks about implementation of potential tariffs, if there's concerns around negotiations with China, whether there's a hard or soft exit in Brexit, all of these factors are all playing in. Now, added as of late has been an increased concern, particularly in the U.S. market, over negative real rates, or is that even feasible or possible? So the rate moves, the dovish stance of the Fed, all factoring in. Gold as an asset is a global asset. So while we're seeing big risk factors that are taking place in developed markets around the world, maybe even in the emerging markets, you're also seeing a shift as well globally around de-dollarization and monetary policy that's leading central banks to be buyers. So we're seeing investors taking risk positions that are careful, and we're also seeing central banks shifting their monetary policy to address it. So I was covering gold back in the olden days, 2009, for a few years. Uh, so I was part of all that conversation of, will we see gold hit 2000? And if I had thought we'd hit negative rates uh, in many, many countries and that we could see it in the U.S., I would have expected easy gold to be 2500 What does it tell you that we're not? What does it tell us that we're not? What I think we need to understand is that the demand cycle for gold is driven and importantly needs to be understood and driven by strategic factors. Mm -hmm. So what I think we need to be careful and cautious of is momentum and short-term opportunity costs move the price fast and actually in large percentage amounts on a given day. We're almost down 1% today. Let's not get caught up in that. What I'd say is going back to your 2009 uh, timeline and actually Gold goes even further back, some 5,000 years. <laughs> yeah, I was talking but, uh, about the, I was about the 2000 uh, reference there. What, yeah. I, what I think is important for people to understand is that in this wave of demand increasing that we're seeing, this looks to be investors taking a strategic position, overweight in their commodity bucket, and positioning for longer-term systemic issues. So the financial risk, the longer term, it's going to be a slow, methodical, continual increase in demand, potentially. So will we get to 2,500? I'm not entirely sure, but what we're seeing today are signals telling us that gold as a relevant asset is going to continue to remain very high. Our conversations, again, with institutional investors in particular are about how much gold should I have in my portfolio, not this question of do I have a need for it in my portfolio. It's being found more and more prevalent in the conversations with institutional investors. What are the uh, ETFs doing with gold and how are they impacting the gold market? The ETFs are proving to be exactly what we know them to be, an ex exceptional vehicle for investors to make a decision to invest in the precious metal itself. They can own the gold through the exchange-traded fund, not only in the U.S. market, which we all know a lot about, but what we're seeing are U.K. investors, German investors in particular, driving enormous amounts of demand. So year-to-date, 
about 9% of net new assets have flown into ETFs with price appreciation. That pool is up to nearly 130 billion in overall holdings in ETFs. So we're seeing investors saying, I need to make a strategic decision. I wanna own gold as a commodity or as a precious metal or in a particular investment bucket divorcing themselves from concerning whether it's a commodity or it's not, simply saying it's a core allocation in my portfolio, so the ETFs are enabling people to get it done. Volumes are transparent, which is helpful, and actually significant. So if you need to buy as an institution large percentages of gold over a course of a day, you're gonna be able to get it done. Now, one last point that I'll make is that in the US, while we know that there are institutional flows that are going into the exchange-traded funds, don't overlook the amount of retail investment that goes into these ETFs as well. If you're looking at the big wires or you're looking at the large platforms in the U.S., they all have available on them some mechanism through exchange-traded funds to get access to gold. And there's plenty of choices today, too. Uh, what happens if the dollar doesn't depreciate? I think that you need to understand that the dollar is one only one factor. Remember, gold as a global asset is impacted by demand in China and India, which makes up nearly 50%. Mm -hmm. It's driven by European geopolitical risk or, or, or economic concerns in those markets. So it's an important factor, but it's not the only factor to take into consideration. So the dollar's been kind of flatlining, right? But where are we going with gold? We're seeing a noticeable appreciation in the price. Why? Because the other factors are kicking in. Again, stepping away from tactical short-term concerning issues, which are important to understand, but understanding that financial market and the risks that come along with that will be driving long-term. So just real, real, real quick, Joe, you mentioned central bank buying. Just give us a sense of how that works what, and just how it plays out. Uh, basically, they're buying the bullion outright in the bullion market. Okay. They go into the OTC markets or the, the, the dealer market in the European arena, for example. And ultimately, they're, they're continuing. I think it's now a 19-year trend that we've seen in terms of increased levels of, uh, of gold being added to the portfolio for monetary policy. So they're buying the real stuff. They're buying the real stuff. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Joe Cavatoni, thanks so much for joining us. Joe is a managing director for the World Council uh, U.S., talking to us uh, all things about gold, getting, getting us updated on gold. And uh, it's a nice chart for the year, looking at that bullion. One part of the economy that uh, remains very strong is the consumer. Um, and let's see how the consumer is doing, particularly the millennials and the younger demos in terms of buying homes and getting mortgages and all that fun stuff. Uh, with that, we welcome Vishal Garg. He is a founder and CEO of Better.com. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Vishal, thanks so much for joining us. wonder if you could just give us just a brief description of what Better.com is. What are you guys doing? Uh, thanks so much, Paul and Lisa, for having me. Uh, Better.com is revolutionizing access to home ownership uh, for uh, millennials. And we're doing it uh, by making the entire process better, faster, cheaper, so you can get a better mortgage. And by doing that, you can get a better house. Uh, you can save up to $3,000 or more on a typical $300,000 house uh, in just upfront fees because we don't charge any commissions and we don't charge any origination fees. And on top of that, 
uh, you can save some money uh, on your rate. So an average consumer will save as much as $1,500 a year on a $300,000 mortgage uh, compared to your traditional mortgage banks or mortgage brokers uh, because we take the commissions out of the process. We've automated a huge chunk of the process. We've made everything much, much, much bit better. How do you make money? Uh, we make money mostly by uh, packaging the loans and having investors who, uh, we have 32 investors on our platform with about $700 billion of demand. Uh, a lot of the largest financial institutions in the country who actually want to have mortgages that are not originated by a commission loan officer or mortgage broker uh, because those typically tend to perform much, much better. And so they pay us a premium for their mortgages and that's how we pay the bills. Um, you know, today we just announced that we raised $160 million from some great investors, American Express, Citibank, Ally Bank, uh, the Health Plan of Ontario, Pinebrook investors. And a lot of that, you know, when it comes down to is all of those banks and major investors are investing in us uh, for the reason that I started the company five years ago. So five years ago, my wife uh, was pregnant with our second child. We were uh, shopping for houses, just people do. Uh, and it was just a really tough process to get a mortgage. My wife worked at a big bank and even there, it took her 60 days to get a mortgage uh, approval. And we lost the house that we were gonna buy to an all cash buyer who actually even paid less than we did. And uh, I thought that was fundamentally unfair. Like branch visits, fax machines, going to Kinko's <laughs> right. and like literally uh, sending my social security number and all these documents over <laughs> unsecure email had cost us the home that we want to buy. So it's like, we're going to make this better. 78% of Americans need a mortgage to buy a home. And how is this thing that everywhere everyone uses, how is this industry that's $15 trillion in size exists as if the internet was never invented. Right. Do millennials buy homes? They do. Their home ownership rate is half of that of traditional uh, uh, generations before, like of the baby movers and, and like. So on average, you know, 70% of that, those earlier generations were able to buy a home. Right now, millennials, about 35% of them own a home. So there's this massive demand for them coming. Why, and people why, like, why, why is that, do you think? A lot of it has to do with challenges with student loans. Okay. Um, they have a ton of student loans, so instead of spending the first 15 years of their working lives saving up money to get a down payment to buy a home, they're paying off the loans for college. Uh, but there are all these products that are out there that your traditional mortgage broker doesn't know. Products by Fannie Mae that enable first-time home buyers to put as little as 3% down to buy a home. And uh, over half of our customer base particularly for those buying a home, is millennials. And the average age is 38, and a lot of them are just, they, they want, they're, they're getting married, they're having kids, uh, they're putting down roots. Um, they wanna have a playroom that they can actually paint the way, the color they want. And uh, mm -hmm. so we see uh, a lot of millennials entering. They're actually the largest group of home buyers this year. So as we've seen rates fall, what kind of activity have you noticed? Uh, we have seen demand go through the roof. Our business is up over 300% from the year before. We're on track to do over 5 billion of mortgages this year and almost 15 billion or so next year. And it's an amazing time to buy because rates being as low as they are, lower than they've ever been yep. in the past means lower rates, higher affordability. Higher affordability means you can bet, buy a better house for the same amount of money. Remember, a lot of people are renting, but when you're renting, you're just paying your landlord's mortgage.
Exactly. <laughs> home ownership, home ownership. That's kind of been, it's the issue about the millennials kind of being underrepresented in home ownership, but the potentially upside there for the housing market. Vishal Garg, founder and CEO of Better.com, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thank you so much. Better rhetoric coming out of uh, the White House about trade. Let's see where the action is with small stocks. We turn to Bloomberg Stocks Editor Dave Wilson. Dave, what are you looking at this morning? Well, I'm looking at uh, smaller companies doing a bit better than larger ones, at least for the moment. The Russell 2000 index up 1.3% and the S&P 500 is up 1.2%. Now, one of the Russell's biggest gains belongs to Empire Resorts, whose ticker is NYNY. The casino owner has climbed 15% after its Malaysian majority owner offered to buy the shares it doesn't already hold. Uh, Sonos, ticker S-O-N-O, is at a 12.5%. The maker of audio equipment was raised at Raymond James to the firm's top rating, strong buy. And tanker stocks are higher after Dry Ships chairman and CEO George Economou agreed to buy the shares of his company that he doesn't already own. Nordic American Tankers, ticker NAT, has risen 8%, and TK Tankers, ticker TNK, has advanced 6.5%. Now, one of the Russell's steepest drops belongs to Revlon, ticker REV. The cosmetics maker has fallen about 4.5% after gaining more than 15% on Thursday and Friday. The earlier advance followed our report that Revlon hired Goldman Sachs to look at strategic alternatives. Bloomberg Stocks Editor Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Well, the tech companies are back down in Washington this time. They are, they are testifying in support of a Trump administration effort to potentially punish France for enacting a 3% tax on global tech companies. To get the latest, we welcome Laura Davison, Laura's congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. So, again, we got the big tech companies in front of Washington, but a little bit different tack today. What are they uh, trying to get across? Yeah, so they're really concerned about this uh, this tax that France has passed that would target largely large U.S. companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook. Um, and, and so the Trump administration has said, yes, we are, are concerned about this. And you really see uh, kind of for the first time uh, tech companies and the Trump administration really being in lockstep on an issue. Um, what could happen from this? Uh, the administration is looking at some sort of retaliatory measure against France to sort of set a precedent of, look, don't go after our tech companies to raise revenue for your country. Uh, tech companies concerned that they could be taxed not only from France, but that other countries could follow suit, Spain, New Zealand, for example, and they could be suddenly hit from, from little taxes uh, from, from countries all over the world. It's what I'm calling uh, tech versus tannins, because one of the things is wine, <laughs> that Trump has threatened to tax 100% uh, of all wine coming from France and Europe. Um, but in, in all reality, like what could we actually do to retaliate? So there's a couple different things. One would be tariffs, and it could be on French wine or, or other sorts of French products. You know, the 100% tariff on wine would be, uh, you know, that would be a, a bold measure. Uh, but there's lots of, uh, you know, either smaller tariffs or targeting a broad base of French um, exports. The other thing is there is a section in the tax code that actually would allow the U.S. government to basically double uh, the the, the uh, tax on uh, French citizens and French companies operating in the U.S. So there's uh, several different things that are legal within the scope of the possible that um, that the U.S. could do to try to get France, France to back down from this. 
So, Laura, how important or how much of a financial risk is this tax to uh, some of these big tech companies? So we haven't heard any sort of uh, specific numbers yet. They're saying it will cost millions to comply. Uh, A representative from Amazon said that uh, their profit margins are usually less than 3%. So this 3% tax from France would wipe out some of their profit margins on those transactions. So it, at least uh, kind of on a, anecdotally, it would be both expensive to, to be able to track all this, to comply with the tax, as well as it could wipe out um, some profits profitability or result in higher prices for consumers. So play this out for me. So tech goes to the DC. They're like, we hate this. This is bad. Everyone in the US is like, totally. We don't want France attached attacks us. This is terrible. Then what happens? So what the US is trying to do is to get France to back away from this tax and focus more on this big global conversation that's happening with 130 companies led uh, by you know G7, G20 to come up with some way to tax. Uh, basically, the issue is that Companies no longer, you know, uh, make things and earn profits in one country with you know, the digital economy. Things cross borders all the time, and it's really hard to, to say which, com- which country can tax which profits. So they're trying to have this big multilateral discussion um, to come up with some rules that everyone in the world basically can agree on. That's what the U.S. wants, and that's what they're trying to urge France and others who want to go off on their own to do. So, Laura, what, just give us a sense, a little bit of backstory here. What was France really thinking here with this tax? Was it simply a money grab for them? Well, partially that, and, and there's a lot of um, anger in Europe at American uh, at American tech companies who they feel um, are aren't paying taxes that they uh, are using um, tax havens to to avoid uh, paying what they should be owed. And they said, look, you know, if if the you know the U.S. government isn't going to address this, if there isn't some sort of global consensus, we just want to move quickly and make sure that we're uh, you know getting a portion, you know, and being a first mover on this, they're able to grab a bigger piece of the pie than they would have if they, you know, did this in uh, coordination with all the other countries. So what's the counter to that? I mean, that sounds somewhat reasonable. It does, though. I mean, it, then, the, then the answer is, uh, you know, especially for France, where U.S. is a close ally, you know, what are the negotiations like? If, you know, there are extreme tariffs, you know, how long can they uh, can they withstand those? Or, you know, if, if every other country has agreed to this other set of principles, you know, could that be something that, the, that France uh, signs on to? This is really uh, – France kind of took a bold step, kind of, I think, with – the other countries assuming that they would be willing to maybe back down on this if there was a larger consensus on something that would be agreeable. Laura Davison, thank you so much for joining us. Laura's a congressional tax reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.